2: I'm, locked, I'm up locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that zone will come Never know just what you Is
1: Doctor
0: Lucy? Good evening, good evening, good evening, everyone. My name is Dr. Nancy B. Brown-Willis, and I am so happy to be your host tonight on Stop Child Abuse Now. Thank you for joining us tonight. NASCA, NASCA Stop Child Abuse Now radio show. NASCA stands for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. I'm your host, Dr. Nancy B. Brown-Willis, and I'm with my wonderful co-host, Ms. Kim Lincoln, and uh, again, it's so wonderful to have you guys join us tonight. I want to start by reading the mission statement for NASCA. We have a single purpose at NASCA to stop, I'm sorry, to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violence or physical abuse, emotional traumas and neglect and we do so with only two goals. One, educating the public, especially as related to health and society, get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone, and then healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse, and information for anyone interested in the many issues involved in prevention, intervention, and recovery. We're on scan number 3141. And if anyone would like to call in and be a guest, I'm sorry, be a, a member of our panel, and uh, if you have any questions or just want to show some support, please feel free to call 646-595-2118. Again, that number is 646 646- five nine five two one one eight. We have a wonderful guest tonight. His name is Dr. Patrick Gannon. And uh Ms. Kim, are you there? Okay. Uh I would like to have I'm gonna read the um our guest bio Tonight's special guest is Dr. Patrick Annan, PhD from San Francisco. A clinical and performance psychologist, he works with individuals, groups, and couples, specializes in trauma, anxiety, depression, performance anxiety, life transitions, relationship issues, parenting issues, and performance coaching. Our NASA family members may know him best for founding org in 1992. In fact, Dr. Gannon has founded four mental health programs during the course of his career, including a treatment program for adult Chinese refugees following the Vietnam War, a child and family mental health outreach program in San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood, a secular skill based marriage preparation program with his wife, Dr. Michelle Gannon, and an international self-help program for adult survivors of child abuse based on his book, Soul Survivors, A New Beginning for the Adult Abuse as Children. Addressed to adults who suffer from child abuse of all kinds, this comprehensive guide is a model of clarity and organization. More recently, Dr. Ganning has developed a multi-modal treatment model for performance anxiety and peak performance training for musicians, athletes, public speakers, emergency medical and law enforcement personnel, soldiers, test takers, writers, and litigators. He sees clients in San Francisco offices and works nationally via Zoom. He is a member of the American Psychological Association and Performing Arts Medicine Association. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Patrick, for joining us today. Did I pronounce your name properly, your last name?
2: Yes, you did. Thank you so much, Nancy. It's nice to be on the show, and I appreciate uh, being able to share some of my perspective.
0: Oh, yes. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you for joining us. Um, would love to hear more about your story, how you got started in this industry. Could you sure, tell well, us a little bit.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I came out to California to go to graduate school in psychology um, in the uh, mid '70s. I know I'm dating myself a little bit here, but uh, it's been a long road, um, and I. My first job after getting my doctorate was um, in the Tenderloy neighborhood of San Francisco, which was uh, uh, a low-income area at the time. Um, it was being flooded by uh, Indo-Chinese, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Laotian families that were coming uh, over from uh, Southeast Asia following the end of uh, the Vietnam War, and um, so it was a new experience for this neighborhood because there hadn't been a lot of kids and families in the neighborhood. But, uh, you know, with this influx of Indochinese refugees, uh, the city of San Francisco decided they needed a special outreach mental health program. And so I was involved in setting up that program with some other people and we would be placed in different, um, uh, facilities throughout the community, uh, daycare centers, Health centers, uh, schools, freestanding mental health centers, what, what have you. And, um, we were a relatively small team. Um, and of course, as, as psychologists and mental health personnel, we were all mandated to report suspicion of child abuse. And, uh, there was a certain amount of that happening, uh, in this neighborhood, uh, in part because of the poverty and some of the crime that was known as a, a high crime area and also a fair amount of drug dealing was going on, a tremendous impact on families. And uh, in this kind of a situation, um, child abuse, uh, you know, tends to uh, spike up. And so I began to notice a very curious connection that some of the children that I was seeing who were possibly uh, uh, survivors of any kind of, of uh, child abuse, what I started to notice was that um, – their parents had suffered very similar types of abuse, and in fact, um, in many cases, the abuse started um, at the same age. When the parents, when the parents were their children's age, that's when the parents uh, themselves started experiencing abuse. And I started making the connection between, you know, parental abuse and um, and child abuse with their with their own children, and that got me involved in. Working with male survivors uh, of sexual abuse first, Uh, we were, you know, back in, you know, this would be back in the uh, early 80s, like 1980, and uh, there wasn't really much talk about um, sexual abuse of men, Um, but gradually uh, it became evident to me that uh, there was a whole population of uh, male um, sexual abuse survivors that uh, were out there in the community And so we decided to uh, create a group, and we, we, uh, you know, produced a flyer, and uh, um, it simply said, you know, men who were sexually abused. And it was an invitation to come to a group and to uh, discuss the issues and to get some treatment through this this, uh, new group model that we were uh, making ourselves available. And um, what was interesting is that I got a flood of Calls on my office practice answering machine, Um, guys that had seen this flyer. We put them all over town, and they simply said, "You know, when I saw your flyer, something happened to me. I started feeling really weird. I started feeling uh, uncomfortable. I started feeling the way I used to feel uh, back when I was a kid. And I have no idea why I was feeling this, but um, I just wanted to know what might be going on." So. As a result of that, we call that the breakthrough crisis when there's in a moment when people are aware that what they had experienced in the past uh, was unhealthy or abusive in this case and were curious about it and were looking for some help. And so from that point, we started to provide some groups uh, for male survivors, and as a result of that work, uh, I uh, began to prepare... manuscript for uh, the book that I wrote in 1989 that was published by uh, Prentice Hall Press, uh, which at the time was a leading psychology publisher. Uh, The book was called Soul Survivors, A New Beginning for Adults Abused as Children. And in that book, um, I interviewed uh, six different uh, survivors of all kinds of abuse. I decided that Um, Even in cases where people identified themselves as sexual abuse survivors, in many cases there were also victims of the three other, two or three of the other types of abuse, uh, namely uh, physical abuse, certainly that's higher prevalence for male survivors, Uh, emotional abuse, uh, which is really common with all of the different types of abuse, and then neglect, something that uh, people tend to overlook, not surprisingly considering what it means. Uh, And so I decided to more broadly focus the abuse, not just on sexual abuse, because at the time there was, uh, for women, there was The Courage to Heal and some other books that had come out that were targeting women sexual abuse survivors. But I felt like there needed to be a more general book for all types of abuse, uh, that included both the male perspective and female perspective. Uh, and as a result of that book, um, I began to work with the, uh, the Norman J. Morris Center for Healing from Child Abuse, a new uh, nonprofit that was started by Dr. George Bellotta. Um And uh, D- Dr. Balada was able to secure funding from a a, a, a uh, a wealthy benefactor who was also an abuse survivor who was able to fund this program for about eight years. And uh, once I started on there at the the Morris Center, um, I was able to uh, convince them to both broaden the perspective to all types of abuse, um, all the four, among the four constellations of abuse, and also to, recognized the need for a new self-help group. Um, Many of the uh, survivors, male and female, were going to uh, Alcoholic Anonymous and uh, AA legacy groups because there was nothing else available for abuse survivors. So, I, you know, we developed that ASCA program, Adult Survivors of Child Abuse, and we knew that we wanted it to locate it in the community. We wanted it to be... Very similar in structure to Alcoholics Anonymous in terms of a decentralized self-help program run by facilitators, or we called them co-secretaries at the time, that were trained and uh, provide on-ground meetings on a regular basis. First in San Francisco, Uh, we began at the University of California, San Francisco. They gave us a, a free room to start our meeting And the first meeting happened in um, 1994, I believe it was, and we put um, uh, a notice in the local recovery newspaper here and advertised uh, the first meeting of the AFSCA program. And to our great surprise, uh, 100 people showed up, which gave us confidence that this was something that was needed and that was – something that was desired by survivors uh, living in the San Francisco community. And so that program uh, prospered in the Bay Area. We had up to six meetings throughout the Bay Area. And then uh, we began to uh, reach out to other places around the country uh, that might be interested in setting up their own meeting. So one thing that happened in the late 90s was that the Morris Center lost its funding and – we decided to put all of the meeting materials uh, available on the Internet uh, tied to our, our website. Our website is askasupport.org, dot org. And what was really fascinating is that people started downloading all of the uh, meeting materials, which were very comprehensive, and began their own meetings. And we found that there Today, for example, there's between 40 and 50 meetings throughout the United States, and also there are meetings abroad as well. Eight to 12 different countries at different times have started their own um, ASCA program. Canada, Australia, even South Africa and India, there was one in the Middle East. Uh, so, you know, the power of the Internet. We were, by giving these uh, materials away and promoting uh, the value of this program, And the fact that it was a psychological recovery program, even though it was structured like an AA program, it wasn't as much of a spiritual program as it was a psychological recovery program, because we thought that really that was what was needed in terms of people to recover from uh, childhood abuse. And I can talk more a little later about that whole process of, you know, what you experienced during uh, childhood and then how you internalize that and how that affects uh, your self-identity, your self-concept, how you function in the world, your intimate relationships, your relationship to uh, work, uh, parenting, all sorts of things. And that became some of the additional chapters that I was writing about uh, in Soul Survivors. And uh, so the program exists to the day. It's, we've just passed our uh, – well, we're at the 29th year, I believe, of our existence and uh, we're happy to uh, have survived on a very limited budget. You know, we get donations from various parties, and uh, and people can send us money if they decide to download and start a meeting. Um, and what we also provide um, training for the co-secretaries or, or the co-facilitators. Uh, typically our meeting structure um, has two facilitators, and they go through a process of Reading some of the guidelines, as we do in AA, uh, the the guidelines and the expectations and the goals and the values and the rules and all of those things for the purpose of setting up a safe environment for people to talk about uh, their, their abuse experiences in the past and also their efforts to recover. The whole book of Soul Survivors is divided into three stages. And I can talk about that uh, in a little later. But yeah, this this whole uh, synergy between the need for services, especially considering the cost of individual psychotherapy, felt, found the fact that we wanted to start a program that was free and readily available in the community, it was very very powerful. And putting it on the internet really made it made it happen on a uh, first national. Uh, and then an international
0: level, and so that was very gratifying for us. Wow, that is wonderful, and definitely what you're talking about, reaching internationally, and you're right, the power of the Internet. You know, a lot of times people think that men, you know, men are strong. They don't need that support, so this is such a needed service that you're providing focusing on both men and women, but really dealing with the men, with the males. Um, women do have a lot more programs and a lot more support. So um, I wanted to make sure that we got our panel involved. Um, I wanted to first check in with my co-host, Ms. Kim. I don't know if she has a question or a comment, and then we'll go to the panel. Ms. Kim? Thank you, Dr. Dean. Hi. Hi, yeah. Dr. Gannon. Hi right there. Thanks again. Thanks for being on again. I um, sure. I admire all the work that you're doing. It sounds like you've done quite a bit. <laughs> and um, and a lot overseas as well. And so um, thank you for all that work that you're doing. Have you heard of um, Dr. Pamela Pine? She does a lot of work overseas as well.
2: No, I, I don't know her.
0: Um, oh, no, okay. I was just curious. But yeah, thank you. I don't really have a question, I guess other than that right now. But um, <laughs> thank you. Okay. Anyway, right. Thank you. Um. All right. So we have Philip on. I don't know if you want to to say anything, uh, but the mic is open if you would like to ask a question or make a comment.
2: Um, do you ever get overwhelmed with all that
0: work? Because I don't think I could do all that. that was good. Do, I,
2: do I ever get overwhelmed by doing this work?
0: Is all of the, the work question?
1: that you do. You, it yeah. sounds like you do a lot.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've been pretty busy over the last 40 years of my career, but it's been very exciting work and meaningful work. And uh, there are times when I was, um, after my book came out, Um, I started getting a lot of calls from people who were uh, multiple personalities, um, severe, severe abuse beginning early in life and extending into uh, later in life during their childhood. And at one time, I had about 10 different uh, multiples in my practice. Now we call it uh, dissociative identity disorder. And because each of those clients had anywhere from nine to 90 uh, personality alters, Um, it was really like, you know, it was, it was pretty overwhelming. Fortunately, I developed a model that encouraged them to uh, emphasize an organizational approach to clustering their different alter personalities based on the shared abuse experiences. And so they were able to organize themselves and um, it was a little, it made it a little easier for me. But within my my work over the years in child abuse, um, with the exception of the really horrible horrible cases, satanic abuse and things of that nature, um, you know, it was really uh, a, a situation where at times I would get um, overwhelmed, and I could always tell when I started getting overwhelmed because I found myself <laughs> having uh, angry angry violent thoughts at the parents of the people that i was working with and talking to because you know that's what we psychologists call counter-transference you know you start to pick up the 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 painful feelings of your clients and uh you know that energy can activate feelings of anger uh, directed at uh, the offenders and uh that was the biggest challenge for me and i think that you know, therapists that work with this population have to be very uh, mindful of self-care. They have to be very careful about not taking on too many clients that um, push them beyond their emotional capacities, because if you are pushed beyond your emotional capacities, then you're you're going to make uh, mistakes. You're going to, you know, it's going to interrupt your ability to maintain that, that strong bond and connection with the clients. So, Therapists that work with this population have to be very, very careful about taking care of themselves and knowing their limits. And there certainly were times when uh, I had to kind of face the reality that I was starting to approach burnout. But um, for the most part, I felt incredibly inspired by my clients' determination and courage to face horrible things that had happened to them in the past and to uh, try to rework their life and uh, using the steps. uh, The Soul survivor's uh, recovery format, as I said, has three stages. The first is, um, you know, trying to come to grips with what happened to you. Um, uh, The second stage is really trying to work through uh, the effect that it had on you. Um, And then the third step is to try to become a thriver, you know, victim-survivor-to-thriver model. And each of those three stages has seven steps. So unlike AA, and this is one way that we depart from the AA structure, is that rather than having 12 steps, we have uh, actually a total of 21 steps. And uh, that can be intimidating for some people because it's a lot more than 12. But, you know, I think recovery from child abuse – Just because of the impact that how how it starts, the fact that it starts in childhood, when uh, people are still forming their identity and their uh, sense of self, um, and how that affects their development uh, into adulthood and how they function in the adult world, it really takes a very uh, thorough and comprehensive psychological model to recover from the effects. It's not quite the same as, you know, developing. resolving a uh, – recovering from a, a drinking problem, for example, which is a little more narrowly focused. This is really much more broadly focused, and I felt like uh, the field at the time needed a comprehensive psychological recovery program, and that's what I endeavored to do uh, with Soul survivors.
0: Yes, Thank you're you right. Um, you're running. Me. Yep. Thank you. Did you have any other questions, Philip? That was a good question. No, like you don't. Thank you, Bill. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Mm-hmm. All right, we also have Mr. Bill on the line, so we want to open up if you have a comment or a question.
1: Patrick Kennedy, it's wonderful to have you back. This is Bill Murray. We've spoken Hi, Bill. You before a few times, uh, and I'm delighted to uh, have you on the show again. I, I told the group you're a good get. You know, <laughs> uh, because I really believe that. And um you know, I'm familiar with your organization. I have attended ASCA meetings, I've I've been trained as a facilitator, although I never really used it personally. Uh, you know, and so forth. So and, and I've gotten the books and studied them. And I am one of those people who um sobered up and then and then thought about it. I couldn't find anything the child abuse stuff as a boy so i um i thought well if i can if i can use these 12 steps and you know and survive alcohol i can probably apply them to the child abuse and maybe it'll help me there and that's what i did because mm-hmm. uh, there was nothing else like you're saying and um when i came to um, florida which is years and years later i was um i guess i was 25 years sober at that point, something like that. Um, And I had bounced around. I was always sharing in my groups that I was a child abuse survivor, and I was afraid they were going to kick me out. But in my home group, the elders said, you know, we don't understand what you're saying, but we do believe that there are people who are coming in behind you that need to hear what you're talking about. So they let me. (laughs) Amazing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, You know, because it's just totally against the traditions, but... Saved my life and probably some other people's too. Well, when I got to Florida, to make a long story short, I looked up to ask the local ASCA meeting, and I was so excited. Oh, it's closed by, and then I, I I reached out to it, and nobody returned the call. I reached out to it, and nobody returned the call. It turned out that it was still in the in the uh, you know the website, but it was not functioning. And I found that for a few of them, but you know with the groups that you've got. Um, The the one that I was able to attend more often than any other was in uh, Santa Santa Clarita, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, And, uh, you know, I went to several of those. That's a couple hours away from me. Well, it's an hour and a half away. But, um, yeah, I really appreciate And this, by the way, the ASCA group, the ASCA support group, is uh, one of the things that NASCA – um, suggests a person who, who doesn't have a recovery group around them uh, try out. You know, take a look at the ASCA support group uh, and because there, there's a need for ASCA support groups. I bet you can, you know, start one of your own and so forth. So it's it's one of uh, three or four things that we suggest people try if they can't find any kind of group near them, and we appreciate that. Um, I've not been active lately but i' but you know i've been uh've been building the nazca site <laughs> uh a tremendous site now and a lot of experience and uh you know I think there's some credit for you i mean I got the survivor survivor book a long time ago <laughs> which was um you know it was, it was it was i think i was impressed that it was downloadable and free for one thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, I built NASA. Yeah, right. I, I was going to say I built NASA to avoid the things that bothered me about groups that I was in or was approaching, and so it's a, it, it, it's, a, it's kind of a, a well, it is a unique uh, group where we don't get any money at all, never have, because we follow the traditions, not the steps. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as the organization goes, that means that we uh, we, we rarely uh, reach out to in any kind of format other than contributions from our you know, our own membership. And, and, and mm-hmm. we don't get very much money, but we don't need any, because one of the other principles is we don't have any office. You know? We have our own office, which is to say the office in the corner of the living room with our own computer and our own cell phone and so forth. And all of us do it that way. uh occasionally we get together, but for the most part, it's uh, internet-based. And uh, we have a lot of good friends. Anyway, Dr. Gannon, thank you so much. I knew you were going to be, you know, I guest. I was nervous that you wouldn't. You were so busy, you would you wouldn't write it down or something. But there you are.
2: <laughs> like Thanks. <laughs> hey, Bill, thank you for that. I appreciate it, and uh, I enjoy hearing your stories. You know, you know everybody has a story about how they came to a place of recovery. One thing I wanted to mention is that <clears throat> in 2015, I decided to do a second edition of Soul Survivors um, for a number of reasons. One is that there were some new approaches that were coming um into the field that uh, were particularly helpful, new techniques such as eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. I'm not right. sure if the audience is aware of that. Um, well, and, we talked uh, about it EMDR it's called. E- yeah, e- EMDR. And so uh, so I also wanted to uh, not just update it, but also to integrate it into the ASCA program. So the second edition which was published uh, as an ebook format in 2015 when you go when you look in the book and you go through all the 21 steps in addition to the original content I've added extra content that allows readers to apply it if they are members of the ASCA program so we're, we're trying to blend in the ASCA program into the original format um, and then um, we just, you know, because I wanted to do it internationally, I wanted the book to be available internationally, and also I wanted it to be relatively low cost. We we put it on uh, Amazon Kindle, and we charged five ninety five for the download. So that's that's one of the reasons why we were able to extend out into the international market because anybody can go to, you know, uh, to Amazon and download the, the second edition. What we found, though, is that many people were saying they wanted an actual physical book. Um, they they weren't that gung ho on the whole ebook idea. So just a couple months ago, we came out and published a an updated paperback. It's primarily based on the second edition, but we added all of the um, meeting materials uh, involved in. Pr- Putting on an Ask a program in your own community, so we extended. Now it's a 407-page book, um, so that is available. It's not available through Amazon because they were going to charge us, you know, thirty-five or forty dollars for the retail price. We thought that was too high, but if you go to Lulu.com, which is a, a print-on-demand uh, company, and go to their bookstore, it's Lulu dot com. Go to their bookstore. You'll be able to order the uh, the paperback the new paperback version that was just published a couple of months ago that has all the information if you want to start your own ASCA group and that book is is only twenty four ninety five so I just wanted to mention that that's our our newest creation for the uh, the AskA program is is putting this uh, second edition into a paperback format
1: well you do you do a, a service to our community our general community by Doing all the work that you've done, and you know, offering all the all the uh, tools, this is you know, it's no small thing. And uh, of course, we at NASA recognize you and want to thank you for, you know, devoting your career to uh, our our struggle. So, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. I love something that you said. Well, I love everything that you said, but you said something very important for people who are out in the community helping others and serving for the rights of child abuse survivors and all of this here. It's important that we practice self-care because negative energy is contagious. You can be out here doing this work and, you know, showing love when you're helping survivors, and then you become, you know, angry, you become rude, you become bitter, and you don't understand why you're feeling that way. It's because you're dealing with things that you're not healing yourself from. So even though you're trying to serve the community, you have to serve yourself. It's very important. Absolutely. You got to take care care of yourself Mm
2: -hmm. first before you're going to be able to help others take care of themselves. Right.
0: Or it could come out exactly on the wrong people right exactly um so you found yourself approaching some burnout and what did you do when you found yourself approaching some of that burnout for self-care what, what do you practice for yourself
2: uh well i'm going share with us i got into therapy myself <laughs> you know the healers need healers themselves and that's of course a big help and uh I also started to do some writing, and I was thinking of writing, you know, screenplays and stuff like that. So for me, writing is a very therapeutic activity. In fact, in um, Soul Survivors, I make a big point about asking these what I call journal questions, um, things that people can write about and think about and reflect about, and writing kind of gets things out. And then, of course, you have a record of your writing and, and what you're thinking about, and you can reflect on it and develop it over time. So, you know, um, reading about, uh, you know, child abuse issues, reading um, other books that had come out, um, being in therapy, <clears throat> doing my own creative. I'm also a, 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 a non-therapy-related, uh, you know, uh, hobby uh, to kind of get away from everything, to take a break from everything. And then, of course, you know, um, being in a relationship, uh, having a supportive wife who also is a clinical psychologist who has a background. In fact, I, I, I could tell you that um, my wife actually uh, first heard of me by reading – she bought my Soul Survivors, and she was reading the book, and then her supervisor – uh, you know, said, oh, I know that guy, and, you know, maybe you might want to meet him, you know, um, and so uh, I actually met my wow. wife through the book, um, and uh, so, so having having a, a strong support group, friends and family and, um, you know, uh, intimate partners um, is really essential, and I also discovered the power of exercise, and even though I had been a competitive uh, athlete during college, uh, I played uh, varsity tennis at boston College, and that 's part of my interest now in doing work with performers and athletes. I found that doing exercise uh, really really it helped ground me and allowed me to discharge some of the pent up energy that I was absorbing by seeing you know six or seven clients a day, many of whom, as I said, were suffering from childhood abuse and so There's a lot of, you know, you have to think about what works for you. I mean, um, some people are going to have uh, faith and they're going to gain support by being a member of their church, and uh, that can be tremendously supportive. Uh, You know, having a good support group, taking good care of yourself, being able to know when, you know, you are really starting to approach burnout and dialing back the number of clients you have or, Taking um, periodic vacations, I mean, there's a lot of ways to take care of yourself. You have to, I think what you said is true. You have to know when you're starting to reach that that point of of, uh, burnout and know that you've got to make a change or else you're going to be less effective and you're going to have a negative effect on the clients that you're trying to help.
0: Our mental health. I'm, I'm honored to have you again tonight. I just want to check if anybody has any questions or any comments. I'm just going to leave it open for anyone. I'm not going to call out any names. Open okay. So we'll fill it Okay. I think we're all set. So you are getting ready to tell us a little bit more about um, – what was the next part that you're about to tell us about? The recovery part, um, the safe environment, the stages of the... What was it that you are getting ready to tell us more about?
2: Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the three-stage recovery model um, because uh, I think that's where um, this program is the most uh, unique. And, uh, you know, when I brought the book to the Morris Center, and we, we thought, hey, you know, maybe this would be the format of a recovery program specifically targeted for adult survivors. Uh, we wanted it to be comprehensive. We wanted it to be specific. And we wanted it to provide a clear pathway, uh, you know, uh, a road to recovery that people could easily understand and work at, the idea being that um, when people accomplish a particular step or a task, they feel some sense of empowerment. So their self-agency goes up and that can lead to more self-confidence and even improve self-esteem. But going back to the beginning, like when I first started doing the groups for male survivors and hearing people's story about how they first uh, figured out that they were in what we call a breakthrough crisis uh, when you know, the memories from the past uh, started coming up in the consciousness for the first time. And there was a gradual awareness that developed that pointed to the fact that they had been mistreated at, uh, as children. I wanted to give them a certain amount of uh, structure that would help them manage the initial uh, kind of um, anxiety and uh, kind of disequilibrium that happens when people realize that, you know, what they thought about their childhood um, was actually incomplete. It was not as accurate as they might have thought. And, and now they, their childhood is recast in a different life because of what these emerging memories were telling them. So the stage one recovery, I'll just go through some of the steps. Um, uh, the first step is, is really what we found when people first came into recovery. And we've written these steps similar to the steps in AA. And it was done for a reason, because the AA model uh, was very, very effective. Uh, You know, obviously it's been, um, goes back to Bill W.'s work in the 30s, and obviously it's a worldwide phenomenon, incredibly successful, um, responsible for helping millions and millions of people uh, to recover from, you know, the, the drinking problem, the alcoholism or the alcohol abuse. And so we wanted to start at the very beginning. So the first one, is I have resolved the breakthrough crisis regaining some control of my life. So people would talk about the fact that they went through this period of destabilization and um, probably some of that involved some what we call dissociation, which is a a psychological defense. And, uh, but if they stay with it and they start talking to people about it, maybe reach out to a therapist or talk to somebody that has been through this thing before they can actually regain a sense of control over their life, basically thinking, okay, well, this happened to me. I can figure this out. Um, it's different. It's it's upsetting. Um, it makes me angry. It makes me scared. But I know other people that have gone through it, and I can survive as well. And then it's really, really important, the second step of this first stage, it's really important that um, that they gain information that allows them to determine uh, intuitively or objectively, um, whether they were physically, sexually, or emotionally abused or neglected as a child, they, they need to really kind of, you know, apply some of these definitions that I was offering in the book to figure out, well, what, what was my abuse profile? You know, what exactly happened? What category does it fall into? These different types of abuse is going to require different approaches, to some degree different approaches, and different emphasis. So so that, again, is an example of uh, self-empowerment through gaining information and, and figuring out from their own point of view what happened. And that is, also offers a sense of empowerment. And then the step three, I've made a commitment to recover from my abuse. So making a commitment, recovery does take a lot of energy. It does take a tremendous commitment. It's not something that you're going to Think about occasionally or just talk about when you're in with your, um, your therapist for one hour a week. <clears throat> recovery is really an ongoing, it's almost like a lifestyle issue for a while. During the heavy lifting stages of, of recovery, you've got to be working, even between sessions and between ASCA groups, you have to be writing and reading and working things through. And that takes a big commitment. So you almost have to formalize the commitment. Uh, in order to give yourself the support and the direction to follow this recovery program through to the end. Um, And then step four, uh, it's really, really critical that you are able to re-experience each set of memories of the abuse as they surface in your mind. Now, you know, dissociation and repression are psychological defenses that have held this information down at an unconscious level for many years. In fact, many of survivors um, will it'll be years into their adult life before they become aware of, of what happened and what specifically was done to them. So they need to, um, as each memory kind of floats up into consciousness, they need to figure out well, what does this mean? What does this say? What does this suggest about? you know, the way that this affected me and, and what actually was being done to me. We move on to step five, which is I accept that I was powerless to actions, which makes them, not me, responsible for the abuse. So this is a, a key element in the psychological ad- adjustment that children that are being abused make. Children that are being maltreated often think that there's something about them something that they did, something about who they are that made the abuse happen, which, of course, is a fallacy. You know, the parents were responsible. The parents are the ones that were in charge. But for kids, they tend to internalize this for a number of psychological reasons, one of which is that, you know, they don't want to think that their parents are out to hurt them, and they have a kind of an emotional and, and psychological investment in kind of giving their parents the benefit of the doubt. Unfortunately, that tends to mean that they tend to internalize the responsibility for the abuse. We we want to right off the bat in the first stage, we want to challenge that fallacy. We want them to realize that they were kids. They weren't responsible for what was being done to them. The parents had all the power. The parents and the parents, you know, pathology and personality were behind the maltreatment. And then we want to begin to kind of address some of the guilt that Survivors typically have for themselves, and then step step number six. I respect my anger as a natural reaction to the abuse, and I'm learning to not turn it against myself or others. So again, this is a now we're focusing primarily on the emotional consequences of abuse. Anger um, is often one of them, one of the one of the feelings. It's a feeling that has to be addressed early on because so many survivors were doing um, self-sabotage behaviors or, uh, you know, uh, hurting themselves in some way. Um, And anger either gets externalized or internalized. So we didn't want them to internalize the anger. We wanted them to manage the anger in a healthy way, not by turning it against themselves or others, but we wanted to put the issue on the table early on that part of your recovery had to include managing your anger and how you express your anger in the real world because I didn't, we didn't want them thinking that just because they were abused and they're angry, they have a right to take it out on other people because that could be self-destructive in its own. So we wanted to address that, that issue about anger. Now, there are many other feelings for sure that come up, um, guilt and shame, uh, regret, sadness, disappointment, uh, betrayal. There's so many different feelings that uh, abuse survivors have. But we were looking at identifying the, the feelings that could be immediately destructive or threatening to their welfare. And we wanted them to kind of immediately have some tools to manage that anger so they didn't um, hurt themselves. And then step number seven, and this is uh, – this is a step that comes from some of the inner child work that Charles Whitfield wrote about, you know, healing the inner child. And and the step itself says, I've reconnected with my inner child whose efforts to survive can now be appreciated. So you've got to adult survivors need to have some compassion for their childhood self and what they went through and that compassion um, for that, that internalized child, can be the foundation of a different attitude toward themselves as adults. Um, And it's really important that uh, survivors recognize the situation that their childhood self was in and appreciate all the things that they were doing to try to survive that, some of which were healthy and, and some of which were not. But it was an effort to try to manage a very horrible situation. And that credit you know, crediting yourself with what you're doing that represents progress and represents, you know, moving you along the recovery path is really critical. You have to develop kind of a, <clears throat> kind of a, an empathic voice, an empathic sense and respect for what you went through as a child. So those are just, that's the first seven steps of the stage one, um, which uh, the ASCA program probably focuses the most on. Um, But uh, that's where people come in, and and generally they they spend a lot of time, usually one to three years, I would say, working through this early stage uh, of recovery. And a lot of it has to do with making sense of the abuse and how how it affected them and uh, what they need to do to have a different kind of life. Many of the survivors I worked with, they 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 weren't really aware when they left home in their early 20s that they were even abuse survivors You know, it wasn't until later on in their 20s or even their early 30s where, you know, they saw the repeating patterns of how their life was going and they finally, after many years, connected it to what was being done to them as children. So um, second stage is really about that. It's about um, similar. We barred one of the, um, uh, I believe it's um, step four of AA, the inventory step. So In stage two, step number eight, uh, we started out with I've made an inventory of the problem areas in my adult life. So we wanted people to take stock, which is what, you know, taking an inventory is really about. Take stock with where you are in your adult life um, and what what are you going to do about it? You have to take – it wasn't your responsibility – for the fact that the abuse happened, but it is your responsibility to take charge of your life, engage in a recovery program that's going to help you turn around your life. And we knew that that second stage was really the heavy lifting in recovery. And then step nine, I've identified the parts of myself connected to self-sabotage. So this may be one of the most uh, common uh, psychological um, elements, effects, of childhood abuse, making decisions that are bad, um, putting yourself in uh, dangerous situations, undoing yourself in a variety of ways, um, this feeling that you're not entitled uh, to take care of yourself or pursue your own interests. Um, We wanted to identify that that had to be um, identified in terms of what are you doing to harm yourself in, in, either gross ways or uh, subtle ways. Um, And then 10, I'm uncovering my shame and working to transform it into self-acceptance. So another, you know, shame uh, became very popular uh, topic uh, when, um, you know, the the Bradshaw uh, workshops were starting to happen in the 80s. And uh, shame was uh, obviously a key element, a key feeling, Shame, of course, is different from guilt. Shame is feeling just like self-blame. Survivors that have read books know it well. (laughs) It's a very difficult uh, feeling to come to grips with. The closer you get to your feelings of shame, the more it kind of burns away at you inside. But we wanted to address that 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 shame had to be transformed uh, into self-acceptance. You had to kind of handle shame in a very particular way in order to kind of not continue to harm yourself by holding it. And then number 11, I'm able to grieve my childhood and mourn the parents who failed me. Again, we're cycling back to what happened during childhood. There's a, there's an element of grieving and mourning the childhood that you never had. Um, And the parents that failed you, obviously parents that abused their children are failed parents. Now, there are reasons why they failed their children. Many of them, as we know, were abused themselves or came from difficult backgrounds. Um, but nevertheless, we know that child abuse is an intergenerational uh, crime uh, and an interpersonal crime that happens between two people, <clears throat> most likely between the, the primary caregivers and the, and the child. Um, but you had to kind of come to grips with the fact that your, your parents really failed you and they weren't what you needed. And uh, maybe they weren't completely useless or harmful. Maybe there were good elements in many cases. But the fact was is that when parents abuse their children, they're failing as parents. And that might sound judgmental and everything, but the fact is is that if some, some things have to be faced. And, and the fact that parents um, – do certain things to their children, um, just have to be seen as horrible and and wrong and uh, represent a failure on the part of their role as parents. Um, Then we move on to the latter part of stage two recovery uh, with step number 12. I can challenge faulty beliefs and distorted perceptions, adopting more healthy attitudes and expectations about myself. Now, I know that there's a lot in this one sentence, this one step. There's a lot of action, a lot of mental attitudes that need readjusting. Um, But you need to be aware that as a result of the way you were treated, you can develop um, faulty perceptions, especially about yourself and who is responsible. And those faulty perceptions um, can extend to a wide variety of other topics that are really determinative in terms of the kind of life that you're going to have. And we wanted to kind of identify that, hey, take a look at some of the attitudes and the beliefs that you hold about yourself. A good example would be uh, for the female uh, survivor that's been abused by a male. Many times they develop negative attitudes toward men for very understandable reasons because they were abused by males. And yet not every male is an offender and uh, it's important. Obviously, female abuse survivors are in the workforce and they're dealing with both genders. And uh, if they have a negative attitude or belief that you know, all men are potential abusers, um, as a very extreme view, um, you know, it's going to have consequences on their career success. So we want them to raise a question as to whether some of these beliefs and attitudes and perceptions are accurate or not, we wanted them to test themselves to see whether they were accurate or not. So you know, these are steps that many people in the recovery field might not have thought about considering, but we think we in the mental health field feel that this is really how people make long-term sustained change is by making certain changes in terms of you know, how they feel, their attitudes, their beliefs, their perceptions, Uh, what they project out onto the world, and we wanted people to develop uh, more healthy attitudes uh, about themselves and others. Hmm. Uh, I accept that I alone have the right to be the way I want to be and to choose how to live my life. So this is basically, it's, you know, people that grow up in healthy families, um, they come out, you know, they come out of a family and, you know, and, in the best cases, they feel that they have the right to make choices that they deem to be good for them. You know, they can operate in their own self-interest. But for many survivors, that's really, you know, not the case. Um, people have kind of maybe have provided more more input or influence, sometimes negative influence on, you know, who they are, what they should do, or, you know, a lot of advice is given uh, to people that are. You know, used to kind of taking it from other people. So we just wanted to reinforce that that you have the right. Survivors have the right to determine who they want to be, what kind of life they want to have, and how they're going to live that life. And of course, this extends to you know today because today you know we have um, many much more awareness about um, gay and lesbian and trans. Transsexual uh, people and trans people and people on the spectrum. There's a lot more awareness now today that people have the right to pursue, you know, who they are and how they want to live in the world and to express their individual identity. So we wanted to reinforce that that is their right. Nobody can take that away from them. And in many cases, of course, this puts them, you know, in opposition to their families who may judge them for what they're trying to do in terms of facing their recovery and we wanted them to know that that right to determine their own um, identity and who they want to be in the world is their right alone and nobody can take that away from them. And then finally number, the final step of stage two is I can control my abusive behavior and find healthy outlets for my aggression. Again, we're going back to the anger issue and we know that the anger is going to be there at some level if you were abused, uh, in particular for males um, who were physically abused. And we know that the, the prevalence research suggests that boys are uh, more physically abused than girls. Girls are more sexually abused than boys. Um, and that we wanted people to know that um, the aggressive behavior is going to get them in trouble, You know, a study was done years ago by Delancey Street, which is a a recovery program in San Francisco for uh, people that had been incarcerated, and they found an incredibly high incidence of physical abuse among prisoners, prisoners, and obviously they were not, in many cases, able to handle their aggressive impulses and they expressed their anger through violent acts or criminal acts, and, of course, they got caught and put into prison. Uh, so we wanted to address that, put a spotlight on that issue about managing the aggressive behavior, um, and which, of course, is tied to their own abuse and the anger that they had. And then if, I, if it's okay, Nancy, for me to go on I don't want to continue to talk if there are questions, but I do want to go through stage three, which is really um, putting together all of the uh, steps uh, prior in stage one and stage two, and building a thriver personality. And so, stage three is really about thriving in the real world. Um, and the first step is I'm strengthening the healthy parts of myself while I'm reducing maladaptive behaviors and patterns. So the idea here is that you come through, you do the heavy lifting in stage two, you take a look at, you know, how the abuse affected you, you identify the areas that need work, you start to do that work in the context of either attending a self-help group like ASCA or individual psychotherapy or just your own kind of recovery, your personal recovery work. And then you want to build on that new sense of self. That's really what, in many cases, it involves, kind of cleaving off some of the parts, the damaged parts of yourself that uh, are hurting you and replacing them with healthier uh, parts of yourself based on how you're living in the world, your daily life, what you do in the world. Like every moment in the world in your daily life, you have a choice to make about how you're going to live and what are the values underlying the choices that you're making. And by doing that day after day after day, you're growing yourself. We call this neuroplasticity. Your brain is actually growing itself in a new direction that is healthy and is mindful and is supportive and considerate and empathic. Many of the things that you were not exposed to during childhood, but that gets reinforced in who you decide to spend your life with, your intimate partner, your friends, your community members. We want you to be able to gradually reduce those maladaptive patterns and behaviors. And then number 16, I'm entitled to take the initiative to share in life's riches. Now, it's really important that abuse survivors have a a healthy sense of entitlement. And when I use that word entitlement, I'm not talking about, you know, narcissism. I'm talking about the right for people to pursue their interests, to get their fair share of life's riches and to be able to enjoy, um, you know, expressing themselves in the world and receiving the benefits. It could be financial benefits by achieving at a job. It could be in the respect of your friends. It could be a sense that maybe the most important thing is when you have children is, you know, ending that intergenerational chain of child abuse by treating your children differently by not being a, a and a, an abuser, and by raising healthy children, that may be the most gratifying thing at all for, for survivors to be able to kind of change what was done to them and to be different parents. I'm also, on step number 17, I'm acquiring the interpersonal skills to adopt new behaviors at home and at work. So interpersonal skills are really critical. And because, again, depending on the type of abuse constellation that they survivors suffered at home, they need to alter some of their interpersonal skills. They need to reduce a sense of fearfulness, for example, or, you know, projecting um, a sense that they're not going to be listened to or they're not going to be valued. They need to kind of, you know, give themselves a break, build on the fact that they can recognize some of the changes they've made and gratify themselves for the hard work that they've done, but they need to be different people in interpersonal situations, not just in their, their, bio, their, um, their acquired family, but also in their community and in their friendships. Interpersonal skills that adopt new behaviors at home and at work, they need to function differently, basically, to be successful. And to, to push recovery to the thriver level, they need to be more effective. Step number 18, I've resolved the abuse with my parents or offenders to the extent that's acceptable to me. At some point, you need to accept what happened to you, and you can choose to forgive your parents. We don't make it an obvious step because some survivors feel that what was done is basically unforgivable, and I kind of believe that too, having worked with so many survivors and hearing the horrible things that were done. I believe that many of those things were unforgivable. From a kind of a spiritual level, being able to forgive is probably a higher level of resolution. The minimum, it should be acceptance. You have to accept and not fight what happened to you. You have to accept that, you know, this happened to me, and um, this affected me, but I don't have to be living, you know, the, uh, the negative effects for my entire life, so... There is some need to have a sense of resolution. And sometimes this um, involves uh, the decision to speak to your offenders. And I have a chapter in Soul Survivors on, um, you know, confronting your offender, confronting the parents. And this is a very tricky issue. And I advise people not to think about that uh, or not to think about taking such action unless you – have the support of a therapist, because it could be dangerous. You know, some parents are going to react poorly if you want to talk about uh, what happened in the past and how it affected you. So it can be productive. It's somewhat controversial within the psychological field. Some therapists think it's not as important. I think it can be very helpful, but it takes a certain amount of planning and choice. Uh, Some situations, like with, with families that are criminal or violent still to this very day, it's probably not a good idea to confront them, right? Because you don't want to put yourself in jeopardy of, of being harmed. But in some cases, as the parents, the abusive parents have aged, they might mellow and uh, they may be open um, because there's a lot more understanding in, in our society today about uh, abuse. And uh, they may have come around a bit and they may have kind of looked at themselves and what they did to their kids and they may be open. And if, and if uh, survivors can have a conversation about what happened with their offenders or or their parents. It can be very healing and resolving, and it may actually help them to move past. Um, And then step number 19, I've developed my own meaning about the abuse that releases me from the legacy of the past. And, again, there's a lot in in this step. But the idea here is that you have to have your own kind of meaning about why me. You know, why, you know, why did I get hit? Why was I sexually abused? You have to have your own meaning of it that um, allows you to kind of um, release you from the legacy of the past. That allows you then to move on and having some meaning. And this is something that um, Judith Herman in her classic book, Trauma and Recovery, it's actually an element in a lot of recovery programs is developing – a sense of meaning as to why something happened and what it meant to me and how do I kind of understand it in a way that kind of resolves it. The more you can understand it um, and accept it uh, for better, for worse allows people to move forward. And then step number 20, I see myself not only as a survivor, but as a thriver in all aspects of life. And here we go back to what Sigmund Freud's definition of a healthy life was, was success in intimate relationships, work, parenting, and play. So can survivors actually play? Play takes a lot of, you know, you have to be pretty secure to be able to play, even childlike. So I see myself not only as a survivor, but as a thriver in all aspects of life, love, work, parenting, and play. And then finally, step number 21, i was. I am resolved in the reunion of my new self and my eternal soul. So the idea here is psychologically, and this is more of our spiritual step. It's the final step. And the idea here is to um, reconnect who you become as a person and who your essential soul was and making that connection. So you have a, you have your own, narrative thread between your essence as an individual person you know one person you know stepping on the earth every day and who you are in your new reclaimed self and that sense of reconnecting their, with your spiritual soul that's why i call the book soul survivors because i think ultimately you know one of the early articles um, about child abuse was called soul murder and I wanted to acknowledge some of the early writers in the field that wrote about that concept of soul murder, and I wanted basically to say, well, it might have been like a murder of the soul, but there's actually through recovery you can reconnect with that, that spiritual side of yourself and connect it to who you become in the world, how you behave, how you treat yourself, how you treat other people. So I felt like that was kind of the... The final step, and, you know, everybody kind of circles through these stages and these steps at a different pace. They, they go through several steps, and they, then they circle back, and they do a previous step. But eventually, they cycle through. If they stay with active recovery and if they go deep enough in their spiritual and psychological work to get to step 21, they're going to emerge as a very completely different person. And so in this case, in this way, this program is really a very detailed psychological recovery program pointing to some of what I think, based on all the research, are the key steps in rebuilding a sense of self, a new self that's going to function differently in the world. So I know I've talked a lot, and uh, I want to kind of give a chance to other people. I know we're starting to run out of time. I want to give a chance to anybody out there that, that might have a question, a follow-up question on any of these steps, and uh, certainly the panel um, uh, to see that question as well.
0: Yeah, um, I wanted to say for number 19, you know, you said sense of meaning. And for me, you know, I am constantly saying to myself, you know, I went through this, but because I went through this, I'm going to help other people. And so I'm able to, you know, it, become, it became my purpose. Like I went through that. It was difficult. It was hard. But because I went through that, I'm able to help at-risk youth. I'm able to work with people in the juvenile justice system, helping the youth, helping the parents, um, just things that I went through being an at-risk youth. And um, And so even though I went through those things, I'm able to help people. Um, because I can relate and I can understand them.
2: Yeah. So, so Mm -hmm. your recovery has resulted in a renewed sense of purpose and you're Mm -hmm. able to then to give, you're here today talking to me because of the work that you've put into yourself and the commitment that you feel that you've extended now to other people and you're helping other people. And of course, that's tremendously meaningful to you. So I congratulate you on that. And, uh, Mm-hmm. You know that's always exciting when the people that I work with go on and start a meeting, or they, you know, they help somebody that's in a bad way, and they they lead them mm-hmm. to the book, or or talk to them and support them. To me, I, that's that's a real sign of recovery when you can then turn around and give. It's like the being a twelve stepper in the AA program. It's a great concept.
0: Mm-hmm. I have another question, but I'm going to wait. Um... I want to open up for the panel. If anyone wants to uh, ask a question or um, share a comment, the mic is open.
2: How many steps are in that program? 21? I'm sorry. I couldn't quite hear that.
1: Yes. 21 steps, yes.
2: Yeah. How many people have... Go ahead. I'm sorry, I couldn't. I couldn't hear your uh, your question.
1: How many people have completed the program?
2: Boy, that's hard to say. Um, you know, in San Francisco, we'll typically have you know six to twelve uh, people in the program. Um, I think that people stay in the program as long as they need, and then they leave. Once we put the program on the internet. We don't often, we don't really know how many people downloaded the program and started meetings. We're sure that we, we we know that, that just because of our communications, we know that there are approximately 40 or 50 meetings going on right now around the country and around the world, you know, usually just a handful in other countries. But we also know that many, many hundreds of people have downloaded our our program, and perhaps we don't know whether they started a program. So it's really hard to know the uh, impact that we've had, how many people are in the program. And then of course, it's really because we don't do any follow-up because of confidentiality and we wanna respect people's privacy. Uh, We don't know how many people have actually completed the program. I think what happens is that people stay with the program as long as they need, and then they start to uh, fade away. And sometimes they become, you know, co-secretaries and, and uh, decide that they're going to give back to, to other survivors. Uh, but I wish we had uh, the money and the funds to, you know, do follow-up research to find out exactly how many people were were, were affecting and how many people actually go through the entire program.
0: For you, um, Dr. Cannon, you know, many times you hear people talk about you know, suppressing their memory of it, but the memory suppressed. And you talked about that breakthrough. Yeah. And um I you know, I did a lot of research. I know my that. grandmother had um Alzheimer's dementia and um you know trauma really does affect the brain. I know we don't have too much time. We have twelve minutes. So if you can just tell us a little bit about that, mm-hmm. how the brain's affected by the trauma. And the memories, how it can't help have you forget things. You can just start forgetting things. It really affects the brain. If you can just tell us a little bit more about that, and then where we can find the book and whatever else you'd like to share, please. Okay. So yeah, this is a kind of a
2: deeper psychological question. And so, um, when bad things happen to children, um, they are overwhelmed by uh, feeling and the feelings become so intense that um, it breaks what we call the stimulus barrier. The capacity of the brain to handle stressful events has a limit. And if you put a child under too much stress, and we've all seen pictures of children, you know, in war situations, um, And you can tell just by looking at them that they're vacant or they they look like they're just a shell of themselves. Their brain is in a shutdown, basically. The brain is designed to protect um, the person from overwhelming emotion. And so it uses psychological defenses, in particular um, repression, which is a – think of it as like a a pushing down of awareness, horizontal – something that pushes down awareness. Another psychological defense is dissociation. And that's where you have a kind of a split between your, in your mental life. So the, you know, consciousness is composed of, you know, behavior and emotion, uh, bodily sensations, knowledge. Um, And dissociation will kind of start to fray that um, those four channels of consciousness. So you'll lose a uh, certain capacity to recall certain memories because the feelings are so powerfully negative that the mind basically is uh, protecting you from being overwhelmed. Now there's some s- suggestion and research that if you don't have those psychological defenses, that you can actually, you know, become psychotic. You You basically can – your personality can kind of just become so overwhelmed that it starts to become fragmented and uh, you know in the case of multiple personality it starts to fragment and you lose the, the seamless integration of you know being able to be a constant presence uh, every day so these psychological defenses um, are really start out to be protective and um, they're really needed and the problem is that, as the child grows up and becomes an adult, those psychological defenses which are you know um, you know very sick, very overwhelming, very powerful, all inclusive, they can start to shut down other types of functioning, including the capacity to remember things. so these psychological defenses have to be lessened in order for you to kind of gain access to what had happened in the past. And this is kind of a tricky bouncing act in the psychotherapy processes is trying to, you know, work with the client or the survivor to be open to what happened and gradually let some of the psychological defenses become a little more relaxed. Some material and memories from the past can come up so that they can be worked with therapeutically. So, there's a number of ways that we know that from the neuroimaging uh, research and uh, fMRI studies, we know that certain parts of the brain uh, can start to shut down, and that's part of that protective function that these psychological defenses do for, for survivors. Unfortunately, it becomes a habit. And even when, you know, when they're adults, they may not need those types of psychological defenses anymore or as much, but they become a habit. And people's self-awareness can be limited, um, their ability to um, focus cognitively, um, it can be affect all sorts of ramifications. We're still learning all of the, the neuroscience and trauma, but a lot of books, you know, Stephen Levine has books, um, there's a number of writers, Bessel van der Kolk has written a very famous book, been on the bestseller list called The Body Keeps the Score, which many of you have probably heard of, and he talks about, he's a psychiatrist trained as a physician, so he talks about the neurobiology of trauma, and uh, there's no doubt that it's having a major impact on the brain, and then if you allow the brain to continue to operate in that kind of more low-level state, it becomes more fixed, you know? It becomes uh, something that just continues to get reinforced every day based on how you think about your day and how you operate in your life in this limited way that becomes a habit. and becomes who you are and this is who you are. It doesn't have to be unless you kind of have some awareness that the past has really caused a, a limitation in how you think, how you feel, how you relate to people, how you think of yourself as a a, a valuable, productive person in the world. It has all of these unintended effects. The original thing, though, is that the brain was designed to protect you from being overwhelmed by the negative things that were happening to you. So that's a key part of the recovery process. Um, so all I, I'd like to close, uh, I'm not sure how much time I have left, but I'd just like to close the most important thing is that no matter how old you are, no matter how severe the abuse was, today there's a lot more options. You know, Bill was talking about the fact that when he was facing child abuse recovery, there was nothing out there. Well, today, you know, many, many years later, there's a lot more resources out there, and ASCA is one resource. You can go to askasupport.org, click on the locations, and you can find you know, uh, a meeting near you, hopefully. Uh, we, we're always supporting uh, the creation of new meetings. And if you're, you know, through recovery or, you know, a good ways into recovery and you want to give back, uh, as you're doing, Nancy, you can think about downloading the materials in the in the book and you can you can get the new book that has all of the Ask a Meeting materials available uh, through lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com go to the bookstore and download Soul Survivors, the second edition paperback. It's twenty four ninety five, dollars um, and it came out. We're really proud of it. it came out um, just a couple of months ago, and uh, several of the survivors in the ASCA program contributed to re-editing it because when the original Soul Survivors came out, first in hardback and then in paperback, they made it more of a what 's called a trade uh, paperback format, which was much smaller six and a half by seven and a half, so the new book is eight and a half by eleven and this was suggested by one of the survivors that actually contributed to the reformatting of the book so some members of the ASCA community really stepped up and helped me kind of go through this book again, go through the process of republishing this book again, so it is available it 's very comprehensive and if you have any interest in starting your own Ask a Meeting, you know, you can uh, read the materials and then, you know, you can get the co-facilitator training that the Morris Center offers on a regular basis. Nowadays, it's you know, it's on Zoom um, and, uh, you know, participate in a training program that allows you to, you know, conduct these programs. very similar to uh, what we see in um, AA where you have uh, meeting uh, uh, leaders that are providing the service, creating the structure and everything for a safe space for people to talk about uh, their issues with alcoholism. So I just want to make a a final point. It's never too late to start this process. It does require commitment and energy and perseverance and determination and grit. You don't want to do it alone. Uh, You want to be part of a community. You want to be in a safe place. It's hard to do this kind of work. If you're in a situation where you're still being threatened, partner or by family members or, you know, your circumstances where you live, it's very important that you feel a sense of safety because doing this internal work is going to create some destabilization. And so safety first. So, so one of the chapters in the book, right before we go into the three-step program, um, we talk about Uh, preparing for recovery. And you have to kind of just not jump into this work, but you have to actually make sure that you are ready uh, to do this work. And this work typically will involve, you know, both self-help and professional help. I really want to, this is the other thing that we're trying to do as a clinical psychologist. I really thought that it was important to integrate psychotherapy, you know, trauma, informed psychotherapy, not just going to anybody that is a therapist, but going to a therapist that knows the trauma research um, and knows the particular techniques that are involved here in working um, on these issues and preparing uh, in a very conscious way to um, launch your recovery process. And uh, it's uh, it's essential that you come and start from a um, – a, uh, a
0: position of safety. That was great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing all of that. We are just honored to have you tonight, so full of information. We have a minute and 15 seconds if you have anything else you'd like to say or uh, how people can find you.
2: Yeah. Well, um, the first thing is to is to go to the org website, It's it's been a redesigned website recently, and we're really proud of it. And uh, there's articles there. There's information there. um, There's all sorts of resources. Obviously, if you're interested in attending a meeting, go to the locations page. Click on that and see, you know, uh, if there's a meeting near you. Um, And, uh, you know, stay in touch. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in contacting me, you can – Uh, use my email address at drpatrickgannon at gmail, that's d-r-p-a-t-r-i-c-k-g-a-n-n-o-n at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, if you have a question, follow up to this uh, podcast, uh, I'd be happy to respond to you. So I I wish everybody the best Mm -hmm. of luck in in doing this work. And uh, I just want to encourage you to not give up and uh, know that there's Uh, A better life ahead for you.
0: Thank you so much. Again, we all want to thank you on behalf of NASA, and hope to have you soon. Have a good night. God bless you. Thank Thank
1: you so much. Thank you
2: for your participation. Yeah. Thank you.